Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. My mother used to always remind me that when I was an infant, gurgling happily on my blanket on the living room floor, if Elvis came on the television, I'd go crazy. She said I'd hear him singing and immediately start jigging. Then I'd see him across the room on the screen and I'd go into a sort of paroxysm, kicking and screaming and smiling in turns, fists in the air, my tiny body reverberating to his sound. So I suppose you could say I became a fan early. I had a tremendous bond with a woman called Elizabeth who used to babysit us. That bond was Elvis. We'd pore over magazine images of him, dance when he came on the radio, knock our knees and do the funny lip quiver. And on rainy Saturday afternoons, we'd snuggle on the couch and watch whatever Elvis film was on. One day I was down the town with Elizabeth and we called into her mam's house. The room was in semi-darkness and Elizabeth's mam embraced her muttering something in her ear. Elizabeth seemed to fall apart. She prized herself free from her mother's grip, howling, and raced to the bathroom, bolting the door. I stood in the kitchen in my knee socks and summer shorts, not knowing what to do. Her mam told me the king was dead. I knew who she meant instantly, and it wasn't long before Elizabeth reappeared and we all three wailed like banshees. So the years passed, and while the king had died, he lived on as a powerful cultural force. After all, who were the teenage boys of my generation channeling, if not Elvis, with their upturned collars that recalled Presley's, and the hair so badly dyed that the jet black colour ran down the back of their necks on rainy days staining their white t-shirts. It became fashionable to poo-poo Elvis. Ah, he was just a gorgeous singer all the women loved, who'd appropriated other people's music and hit the big time. Sure, with the corny movies, the underage marriage and the excess of Graceland, didn't he eventually become a parody of himself, I've heard it said. But I often challenge these naysayers and ask, can you name any other rock star, singer or performer who has ever rivalled Elvis? In terms of charisma, in terms of beauty and live on stage, have you ever seen anyone else give of themselves so freely and completely? He simply sizzled, didn't he? If you need reminding, take a look at him in his black leathers in the 68 comeback special. In my own life, Elvis has been a recurring presence. He was a few years dead when on my birthday, my mother marched me into the local record shop and let me choose whatever album I wanted. I plumped for a double LP of Elvis, the cover depicting him in his lamb-chop-toting, glitter-suit-wearing glory. When I got it home, I played it until it hopped all over the turntable. When I worked at the Irish Repertory Theatre in New York, one of my co-actors, Rosemary Fine, played Mandy alongside my Bridget in the American premiere of the Magdalene Laundry play Eclipsed. Poor Mandy was obsessed with Elvis. I can still hear It's Now or Never blaring at full volume and I can see Rosemary's black eyes burning as she lip-synced her way across the stage. And once I got to spend my own birthday in a way with the king. 
In a coincidence I can still barely believe, I learned at short notice that Elvis's original backing band would be performing in what's now the Three Arena, playing accompaniment to a gigantic hologram of him performing at the height of his powers. I organised a posse of friends and off we went. What a night. Thousands of people like myself revelling in the closest thing we'd ever gotten to experiencing a live Elvis show. It made me realise that as a performer, he gave his all. He seemed to have no filter, no boundaries. He gave everything of himself to his audience. That integrity he brought to his creativity in live performance, I think along with demanding studios and managers, may have eventually led to his downfall. Perhaps it was just this vulnerability that was seized by opportunists out to make a profit no matter what. We've seen this time and time again with talented people, thinkers, designers, athletes, true artists everywhere, who deserve to be protected and nurtured, prized and encouraged to flourish so they can enlighten and inspire others. All of us, not just performers, have so much we can learn from Elvis. How can we give of our best, give 100%, without getting swallowed up by the machine? It is late summer 1967 and I am 10 going on 11 and I have transformed myself into a mythical creature with the head and arms of a human and the body of a Connemara pony. I am Tommy Wade and Dundrum in one, indivisible. I am in my back garden surveying the seven fences that are to be jumped and the eyes of the nation are upon me. This is the final round in the Aga Khan Nations Cup. Nothing less than a clear round will do for Ireland, and I am for Ireland. My Tommy Wade arms give my Dundrum flank an encouraging scalp with my improvised crop, and we are off, and my Dundrum legs pick their steps carefully, and I positively spring over every obstacle and my Tommy Wade brain calculates the paces between each obstacle and makes sure that my Dundrum body is set to jump each fence. Oh, what a creature we are, Tommy Wade and Dundrum, and we jump a glorious clear round, and Ireland wins the Aga Khan Trophy for 1967. Of course, my ten-year-old self does not wonder why international show-jumping teams compete in Dublin for a trophy donated by a Pakistani-born, Indian-educated leader of an estimated 15 million Shia Muslims. The Aga Khan trophy simply exists and is worth the winning, and in 1967, I win it for Ireland. And then I turn 11 and leave childish things behind. Spurred on by stories in the Hotspur and the Hornet, I become an explorer and Egyptologist. And I am there with Howard Carter in November 1922 when he makes a small opening in the top left-hand corner of a door 
that he believes to be the doorway to the tomb of Tutankhamun. I am there when he holds up a candle and peers inside. Can you see anything? Lord Carnarvon, his benefactor, asks. Yes, Carter replies. Wonderful things. And I see them too. And then there is the curse of the pharaohs to be investigated. The mysterious deaths of eleven people associated with the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. George Herbert, the Earl of Carnarvon, dies just four months and seven days after he first entered the tomb. Even Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, believed that the deaths might well have been caused by 3,000-year-old occult elementals. I have no idea what an elemental is, but it sounds wonderfully esoteric, and I am enthralled. No wonder ancient Egypt takes hold of my 11-year-old imagination, and it has never loosened its grip. So picture my excitement when my beloved gives me the gift of a trip to visit the ancient sites in Egypt, the ones I have dreamt about for more than 50 years. And they do not disappoint. On at least two occasions I cry with pleasure. The first is in the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities in Cairo, standing before the gold funerary mask of Tutankhamun, which bears the likeness of the young pharaoh and the serene expression of Osiris, the god of the afterlife. The second occasion is in the Valley of the Kings, in the vast necropolis, in the limestone cliffs of the Theban mountains on the west bank of the Nile. I can feel my heart beat in my chest as I enter the tomb known as KV-62. In this small space, the sarcophagus and the embalmed body of Tutankhamun, wrapped in its linen bandages, are on display. And looking at the remains of the 19-year-old pharaoh, I moved to tears. Afterwards, at Aswan on the Upper Nile, we visit the old Cataract Hotel to draw breath. The hotel is a throwback to the days of the British Empire. It was to this very hotel that Howard Carter came to be fated after the great discovery in the Valley of the Kings. For good measure, Agatha Christie spent ten months here in 1927, writing her novel Death on the Nile. We succumb to the decadence of our surroundings and order cocktails on the terrace overlooking the rapids that mark this stretch of the great river. And then, inexplicably, my eye is drawn to an elegant domed building made of pink granite and sandstone, which stands on an island in the river. I inquire about it, and I am informed that this is the mausoleum of the Aga Khan. Really? Our Aga Khan, Sir Sultan Muhammad Shah, Aga Khan III, religious leader and equestrian enthusiast, who donated the Aga Khan trophy to the RDS in 1926. The very one. And in an instant, the glamour of Egypt fades, and my imagination is overtaken by images of Tommy Wade whispering encouragement into the ears of brave little Dundrum, and not even the splendour of the Egyptian pharaohs, the might of the British Empire, or the gushing waters of the River Nile can keep me from a flood of sweet remembrance. For I am a mythical creature, and I am in my back garden in Crumlin, and the cheers of the crowd echo in my ears as I win the Aga Khan Trophy for Ireland.
230 years ago this summer, a momentous event took place in Belfast. Towards the end of the 18th century, there was a consensus that the Irish harp tradition was on the verge of extinction. There were few Irish harpers left, and their music, once central to Gaelic society, was dying out, and Ireland's national instrument with it. In Belfast, a group of forward-thinking people decided to put out a call inviting all remaining Gaelic harpers to travel to the city for a unique harp festival. The organisers of this event, the merchant-class Presbyterians Dr James MacDonald, Robert Bradshaw and Henry Joy, sought to rescue Irish music from oblivion by engaging a skilled musician to transcribe the music the harpers would perform. The famous Belfast Harpers Assembly took place at the exchange rooms in Belfast from the 11th to the 14th of July, 1792. Ten Irish harpers turned up from various parts of the country, including the 97-year-old Dennis Hempson, who played his wire-strung harp in the true old style with his fingernails, the blind Arthur O'Neill, whose memoirs were written down and tell us much about the conditions for a harper in 18th century Ireland, and Rose Mooney, also blind and the only woman who participated. By far the most important thing that occurred at the assembly was that a young man named Edward Bunting transcribed the music the harpers performed and took notes on their instrumental techniques. 19-year-old Bunting was a classically trained organist from Armagh who dedicated the rest of his life to collecting Irish music. He went on to publish three highly influential volumes collectively known as The Ancient Music of Ireland. As a poet, scholar and harper myself, I've always been inspired not only by Bunting's great musical legacy to us, but also by what he records about his encounters with the harpers. Why did Dennis Hempson feel such mournful resignation about passing on his music? Why did Arthur O'Neill have tears running down his cheeks as he reflected on the old modal melodies of the Gaelic past? The tide was certainly moving toward the art music traditions of the continent. I found these questions fertile territory to explore in poetry. The first poem I composed, Dennis Hempson, came easily, almost writing itself. And when it was written, I found that I also wanted to try to understand Rose Mooney's world, that of a blind middle-aged female harper in 18th century Ireland. What was that experience like for her, venturing into the male-dominated public sphere with her harp? I wrote a number of poems in the voices of the harpers and eventually published them in a collection. Just last month, Harpers from all over Ireland celebrated the legacy of the 1792 Belfast Harpers' Assembly at the Harps Alive Festival organised by Harp Ireland and reclaimed the Enlightenment. We've been honouring Edward Bunting in particular because of the debt of gratitude we owe him for preserving so much of our music. And I had the honour of reciting a new poem I'd written about Bunting at a special commemorative event at his newly restored graveside in Mount Jerome Cemetery, on Sunday the 24th of July. And here it is. Edward Bunting encounters the Harpers. This is truly the Irish crith, like nothing we find on the continent. An instrument nurtured uniquely here to reflect our island's harping prestige. These strains address themselves to the heart, 
harmonize with the finest feelings of man. Shall we suffer them to perish at the close of our century? Or will they enjoy a greater destiny? We must make these ancient melodies vibrate in the national memory. I shall capture their notes without stems, scribble with speed right to the end. Transcribe while the bards play in real time, seize and string black dots across lines of a staff on my page as I stay in the flow with their primordial tones so diatonic. I'll resist the lure to transpose their modes till I catch the whole of the treble and glaeus. I would like to arrange their music that it may be played in every household, but perhaps upon the pianoforte, yes, to ensure its longevity. And though I am no Gaelic scholar, I'll take pains to note native phrases that we may learn of the people and lore, like the great stream pronounced Shromor. In paying these strains their due attention will restore a page in the history of man. I will spread Irish airs far and wide, launch them forever into the world. There are no wedding photos of our parents. They got married in Granada, Spain, each in a clean pair of jeans. Recently, I restored a hazy 1970s photo of them in Tripoli's Martyr Square. I'm missing from this period of my parents' life as I'm in Dublin with my Irish grandparents. But it's one of the few photos we have of them together and was taken shortly before Dad was under house arrest. My parents seem so glamorous standing in front of a white car, dust-lit pantries in the background. Him, a writer in dark jeans, blue open-striped shirt, buckled leather belt, stubble. Her, an artist in white jeans and pink shirt, her long dark hair tumbling over her right shoulder. Her hair was the envy and wonder of many, often touched by curious strangers on the Tripoli streets. She'd tie it up with a pen, or wash it in the kitchen sink to the bemusement of her Libyan in-laws. The reconditioned photos reveals mum is wearing silver platform sandals, no doubt height-checked. I often recall my parents standing before a mirror to ensure mum wasn't towering above dad in heels. There's a chain around dad's neck and an elephant hair bracelet he wore for luck. He's beaming, an eyebrow raised slightly, and he's leaning for effect on a walking stick. He uses charm, if not a little madness, and he's holding a cigarette. Mum is wearing sunglasses, yet it's early evening. Her fingers entwined, she's smiling slightly self-consciously. Her ability to draw fascinated me. Pictures at her fingertips. They look in their mid-twenties, but they're already in their early thirties. A decade of an eccentric, tumultuous life together behind them. They met upstairs at McDade's pub, at a reading of my uncle McDowell Wood's poetry and first lived together in Ireland before moving to Granada six months or so before the Clean Jeans wedding and it's where they made me. 
then to London for a time where we resided with the historian A.G.B. Taylor. We moved to Azazia, the small Libyan town Dad grew up in. Mom loved my Libyan granny's Azazia home. A single light bulb hanging from the ceiling reminded her of her grandmother's farm in Athboy, County Meath in the 1950s. We finally settled in a small terraced house in Tripoli, the last place I knew there as our family home. My favourite story of mum and dad is them stuck in traffic in the car from the photo. Near this spot is Martyr Square. Dad couldn't drive, but he was a terribly bossy passenger seat driver, instructing her to turn, Orla, turn, go this way, no, no, that way, Orla, look, Orla, look. On one occasion, fed up, she opened the car door, got out and walked off, leaving him stranded in a pile-up of traffic, unable to drive away. We travelled through the square on our way to the family farm, sometimes with mum driving and sometimes in a shared people taxi. There, our big, extended, noisy Libyan family would sit in cushioned floors, generations eating, gossiping, combing hair, applying henna tattoos whilst drinking shahi, men in one area, women in the other. Before I left Tripoli when I was seven, my Libyan grandmother intricately hennaed my legs with spirals and flowers. When my Irish granny, a teacher, saw them, she left me soaking in the bath and tried to scrub the tattoos off. She was fearful of the judgment I'd encounter in my Irish school. There's nothing more narrow-minded than a teacher's staff room, she'd say. Over the years, my dad, my sister and I would meet intermittently in Tunisia, but never Libya. But I finally returned to Tripoli in November 2011 for a post-uprising conference and met my father there. As we walked to the square, people approached Dad, now a renowned writer and painter, and he proudly introduced me as his daughter. During the uprising, Dad communicated with us by text. By then he'd lost his voice to cancer. He had three voices, he said, his own, a pen and a paintbrush. For a while, Gaddafi blocked texting, the only time Dad was silent, until now. That last trip, as I stood in the square near where the photo was taken, I closed my eyes and conjured this photo, the symbolic essence of why my sister and I came to be. Everything about Libya is noisy, but the square is so distinct in its noise. Beeping, shouting, traffic, birds, the souk. A cacophony against a bouquet of coffee smells, heat, gasoline, dust mixed with the spices of Libyan food emanating from the restaurants. In the near distance, the waterfront and the Mediterranean Sea. This is where our parents arrived one morning to see for themselves that the rumours were true that Gaddafi had painted the square green overnight. My sister and I often walk along Sandy Mount Strand reminiscing, wondering if we'll ever visit Libya once again, echoing the past of our parents, now that our father no longer walks amongst us. Mum too has a yearning to visit Libya one last time, often speaking of when they lived in the White Elephant Apartments, what she calls her happiest years with Dad, before the regime and the troubles began. As I look at this photo, I feel him kissing my forehead, something he's done since my childhood, and hear his pre-cancer voice whispering his beloved Rumi. Goodbyes are only for those who love with their eyes. For those who love with heart and soul, there is no such thing as separation. Je les sois à des zones ni à l'air, 
A few of us were walking out of the CBS school after an evening of study for the famous County Council Scholarship when Lar Hunt, one of the nicest teachers to walk this earth, came rushing towards us saying, Boys, boys, President Kennedy has been assassinated. We looked at Lar somewhat puzzled until he realised that we didn't know what assassinated meant. Boys, he said, President Kennedy has been shot. We walked slowly, silently home that night, suddenly aware that there was a big, bad world out there. I was in John Clear's bar in Kilkenny, glued to the television, biting my nails, when Packy Bonner saved against Romania's Timofti, and when David O'Leary scored, the pub erupted. I have never known such exhilaration, such unbridled joy at a sporting occasion before or since. I have never hugged so many men in my life, and I have never kissed so many women, none of them my wife. 16th of August, 1977, I was lying on a sunbed on the patio of my sister's home in Nicosia, the capital of Cyprus. My sister was working with the United Nations there and invited me over for a holiday. I was listening to the BBC World Service on the radio when I heard some Elvis Presley songs being played. Rather unusual, I thought, for the BBC World Service to be playing popular music. And then a plummy British voice reminded us that Elvis Aaron Presley had died at his Graceland mansion in Memphis, Tennessee, at the age of 42. I was stunned and profoundly saddened. I became an Elvis Presley fan because of my older sisters. I first got to like his music thanks to my oldest sister, Frances, who listened religiously to the Top 20 on Radio Luxembourg every Sunday night, which regularly featured Elvis Presley hits. I listened in too, got to know Elvis Presley and his music, and liked it. This same sister subscribed to the fanzine Elvis Monthly, which I surreptitiously dipped into out of boyish curiosity, which enhanced my appreciation of Elvis and made me envious of his to-die-for hairstyle. My second eldest sister, Mary, might not have been quite as ardent a fan of Elvis as her older sister, Frances, but she found herself going out with a fellow who was a huge Elvis fan and who'd acquired a serious collection of Elvis LPs. He very graciously loaned me those LPs. If I liked the music of Elvis Presley previously, I liked it even more now. Loved it, actually as I practically wore out the turntable of our radiogram listening to Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, Blue Suede Shoes, Jailhouse Rock, Blue Moon. When he and my sister broke up, 
I secretly hoped he'd forget about the Elvis LPs he had loaned me. He didn't, and who could blame him? And then there was my third sister, Edie, whose house I was staying in, in Nicosia, on that sad 16th of August, 1977. Edie leaned more towards the Beatles and the Rolling Stones than Elvis, as indeed I had to an extent. Compared with our more conservative siblings, including our oldest brother John, Edie and I, being the two youngest, grew up with one leg in the Legion of Mary, so to speak, and one leg in faded denim bell-bottoms. But there was no avoiding, no escaping Elvis in our house, and Edie, like me, succumbed to the infectious, vibrant melodies of Mr Presley. I left that sunbed to phone my sister Edie at work in the UN with the tragic news of Elvis's death, when who should sidle up to me but her pet poodle, a lovable, jet-black, curly-haired mutt, who answered to the name of Elvis. Standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own Digging Worms The birds above want him I want him in my can An old fisherwoman who happens to be my beloved granny Wants him on her hook to catch a trout next to her salmon-seeking husband tomorrow, Sunday, if it's a dry day. She will give me a pound a can for Mr Worm and his friends who come out to play for my digging fork. It's purely commercial enterprise, me pulling the worms. I have no conscience that their flesh is pierced by my gentle granny onto her hook. I am only the collector. I don't hurt them. Use a freshly pulled dock leaf to pick them up, can't cope with the touch, and pop them in the rusty bachelor's bean can. Granny, who gave birth to eight children, thinks all this natural, murdering the worms, and in turn murdering the fish it lures to her hook, bashing them to death, slicing them down the middle, and then offering the flesh to us, my mother, my aunts and uncles, and her neighbours to cook and eat. Come here, little worm, a hither little one, lucrative beauty of my small back garden patch. On this morning's programme, we heard Elvis and Me by Amy Redmond. Mythical Creatures, The Valley of the Kings and the Aga Khan Trophy was by Kevin McDermott. Honouring Edward Bunting by Emily Cullen. The Non-Wedding Photo by Farah Abushwesha. The King and I by Jerry Moran and at the end Digging Worms a poem by Noel King The music today was It's Now or Never by Elvis Presley The William Tell Overture by Rossini played by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Herbert von Karajan Thurdom the Love was played by Maidens of the Celtic Harp Hadi Thunia was by Dua and lastly Blue Moon also by Elvis Presley 
Emily Cullen's poetry collection, Conditional Perfect, is published by Dira Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find highlights from Miscellany at our website, rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.